From Tokyo, Japan, I'm Frank Ling, and you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the way they affect our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, Professor David Victor joins us to talk about COP21 and the Paris Agreement. So stay tuned right here for the Grok Science Show. back to the program and joining us is our very special guest today uh, professor David Victor from the University of California at San Diego and he is here with us today to share us his thoughts on the COP 21 negotiations and how the climate regime will move forward uh, professor Victor thank you so much for joining us here again today on the Grok science show well it's great to be back it was a very exciting uh, end last year as it culminated in an agreement at the COP21 negotiations. Um, many people are probably not familiar with the complexities uh, behind the COP process. Could you give us a little bit of background on COP and what was so significant about uh, the Paris Agreement? Well, the COP, the Conference of the Parties, is the main decision-making body under what's called the Framework Convention on Climate Change. The Framework Convention on Climate Change was negotiated in the early 1990s, it was signed at a big uh, conference in Rio in 1992, and then after countries signed it, uh, they went back home, they ratified it, and enough countries ratified it that it came into law, and the first meeting of the Conference of the Parties, once this treaty was uh, was in law as a matter of international law, was in 1995 in Berlin, um, and so this is the 21st of those annual conferences. Um, there have been, over the years, many, many disagreements, and one of the disagreements has been around the rules for making decisions, and so that's created a huge problem because it means that absent stronger rules, the countries basically have had to agree on everything almost by consensus. It doesn't mean that every country has to agree with everything, but they have to be they have to have essentially consensus. And so that's one of the reasons why, as these COP meetings have progressed, they frankly had a hard time agreeing on things that are very useful. In this uh, Paris conference, uh, their main agreement was a, a pair of agreements. It was an agreement on a decision that laid out a, a new agreement, an international agreement on climate change, the Paris Agreement. That, that agreement itself will be open for signature um, this spring in, at the United Nations in New York. And then maybe more importantly, but more wonky, frankly, is an, is an agreement on all the things that need to be need to happen in order to bring the Paris Agreement into force. And I think one of the reasons, we can talk about this in more detail, but one of the reasons that, that people are encouraged by the Paris Conference is that, frankly, this is the first time in 18 years that delegates have come to one of these big meetings and left with an agreement in hand. So just that alone, just getting to agreement, getting to yes, has been a big deal and has, has injected a huge amount of confidence back in the process. Because, frankly, a lot of people, including a lot of firms, were beginning to think that maybe this job was just too hard to make progress on climate change, and as they lost confidence, that's made it harder to get things done. Who won? Would you, would you say everybody wins, or were there some people who were left out of this agreement? Well, by, by definition, everybody agreed to the agreement. 
the that's the art of getting a big agreement like this is you've got to have enough in it and vague words here and there to paper over differences and so on to get um, all of these countries with these very very different interests to agree and the diversity of interests is truly extraordinary you've got at one extreme uh, the low-lying island countries who don't emit very much but are on the front lines and extremely vulnerable to climate change they want the strongest agreement possible and they're not really worried about the cost of implementing that agreement because they're not going to be paying those. And the other extreme, you've got, for example, the carbon exporting countries, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, others, Russia, for that matter. Um, and they're really worried about an agreement that could be expensive because they're going to bear a lot of the cost as the producer of, of carbon-based uh, fossil fuels. So you have this huge diversity of interests. And, and, and part of what happened in the run-up to Paris, and especially in Paris, is the French government orchestrated masterfully um, uh, uh, an agreement that allowed these differences to be papered over here and there and yet got something done. Certainly uh, encouraging for people who have been following the uh, negotiations for a long time. So, you know, in our, in our previous conversation, you had mentioned red lines and in making any decision or discussion, one of the problems is if you don't know where the red lines are, it's hard to for even opposing teams to come up with their stances. Would, would you say, uh, you know, countries in general are beginning to become more aware of these vulnerabilities and that's why this new urgency to make an agreement or what, are there other factors behind it? Yeah, I think that's an important question, because why do we have success in Paris, whereas back in 2009 in Copenhagen, we famously ended in, in, in deadlock and, and acrimony. I think success in Paris came from a handful of, of factors. First, in the intervening years, countries have learned more about their vulnerabilities. There's no question about that, the vulnerabilities to climate change. Uh, so you see India and China, for example, both those countries have done in the last few years big assessments of, their in, of the impacts of climate change, and they've found that they have an interest to do something about the problem. Uh, so that certainly has played a role. Um, the French government, frankly, were better organized than the Danish government and the hosts of the last big conference. And um, uh, so they were more tactical. They, they made this a national mission. The French president himself was there. Foreign minister has spent a big part of the last year, year and a half, working on this. And so they, they've really they, they've committed major resources, and they've done it in a smart way. But I think the single largest explanator of success in Paris is a new negotiating process, which is more bottom-up than top-down. So there's been a lot of attention in the press about these big, ambitious goals, like stop the warming at 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees. I, I think that those goals are unachievable. I think we've waited too long to get serious about the climate problem to meet those goals. But, but be that as it may, those are kind of top-down goals, if you like. The real recipe for success in Paris was that every country was asked to come to Paris, long before Paris, actually, and put on the table its own individual plan for what it was going to do to control emissions and get ready for climate change. Those plans were called the Intended Nationally Determined Contributions, INDC, and a lot of acronyms in this business. And so... The final agreement in Paris, the, the part of it that I think is the most important, the part of the game plan for the next few years, is recognition that, that the process needs to be flexible enough to take into account every country's different starting point and interests, these different INDCs. And so what you're going to see is a process that some people call pledge and review, that we have a set of pledges on the table now. We're going to have a mechanism every few years to assess the adequacy of those pledges, to assess the individual countries, uh, and then kind of ratchet those forward. And I think that's that's where we need to watch. And frankly, that how that process unfolds after Paris is going to be more important than the success in Paris itself.
Speaking of the uh, INDC, does that supersede any of the other um, concepts they've discussed in the past? For example, the MRV, uh, measurable, reportable, verifiable, or the NAMAs, or the CBDs? Well, I think my view of this, which is a little cynical, maybe maybe more than a little bit cynical, (laughs) is that what people have been doing for the last five or ten years, what the diplomats have been doing, has been groping around for a concept that is appealing to a large enough group of countries that matter. And the MRV was one variant of that, and the NAMAs were another variant of that, and so the, the names keep changing, but what's been happening fundamentally is this shift towards, towards a system that gives these countries more flexibility. And so in, in Paris, you still had a lot of the same old-fashioned disputes that have been going on in climate change diplomacy for the last 25 years on display. For example, disputes between the industrialized countries, so-called Annex 1 countries, and the developing countries, so-called non-Annex 1 countries. So those are divisions that go back to 1992, and they're, and they're antiquated now, given all the changes in the world economy. But because of these, flex, these flexible pledges, those big differences didn't matter as much as the fact that China came and put on the table a huge plan for controlling emissions that was lined up with Chinese national interests. And India came in and put a big plan on the table. Brazil did something similar. Indonesia and, and the United States and European Union and Japan. And so then you start to add all those up. And what you see reflected in those is the curve starting to bend and countries starting to do more in terms of their policies. What about the bilateral aspects of these negotiations? Have some of the discussions between countries you know, laid out the foundation for this, or is it the, you know, the whole that matters more? Well, so I, I, my view is that the climate problem is too big to handle in a global forum where there's consensus decision-making. You're always going to find some countries are not happy with the outcomes. And so I understand the need for these global forums, like the Conference of Parties for Legitimacy and the kind of put a wrapping around the whole thing. But I expect that most of the action is going to happen in smaller groups where countries can, can work with lower transaction costs, can work in ways that, that are more flexible, that can line up with their own interests. And a good example of that is U.S.-China bilateral that was announced in November 2014. Um, this initially is not really doing a lot more than what those countries would have done individually. There's some joint action on technology development and so on that I think is quite promising, but it's a start. And, and I think what we saw in Paris was the manifestation of lots of these little bilateral efforts between the EU and other countries, between the United States and other countries. There's a coalition of a small coalition of countries that are working in the Arctic, another related coalition of countries that are working on short-lived climate pollutants like soot. And so you saw lots of all lots of these small groups, and that reinforced the need for whatever happened in Paris to be flexible enough to, to, to deal with this reality that it's individual countries and small groups of countries that are making more progress than the big than the big setting. One of the most encouraging announcements in Paris was an announcement by essentially all the countries that are responsible for most of the world's public sector spending on energy R&D to double their investment. I don't know exactly how many of those countries can actually implement that pledge, but that's an example where you didn't need all the countries in the world to sign up to that. You just needed the ones that mattered. So speaking of technology, what would you say be the, say, two or three classes of technology which would uh, get more attention or funding because of the Paris Agreement? Well, I think there are three that are in the news a lot. One is renewables at scale. and we, We've known that for a long time, and there's a lot of attention to renewable power. 
um, and the potential to scale it up. Uh, my state, California, is doing a lot in this area. Um, Hawaii, outside the United States, we have a huge German program, the Anagavenda um, uh, program in other countries. To me, it was interesting that the Indian RNDC put solar power uh, really at the center of that program. I think when you look closely to India, they're still going to burn a lot of coal and a lot more coal in the future, and they're actually going to be the source of uh, maybe the single largest source of growth in emissions, but they see renewables as a big, uh, uh, as a big future. So I think renewables, the clusters of technologies that make renewables work, which is not just the renewable power production technologies, but also storage in particular, we're going to see a lot of that. I think we're going to see fresh attention to nuclear uh, of all types, uh, pressurized, better pressurized water reactors, the big reactors that we have right now, a lot of them being built actually in Korea and especially in China, some now being built in the Persian Gulf. So I think the, the nuclear renaissance in some sense is happening in the emerging economies and not in the industrialized countries. And there might be more in, term, in terms of small modular reactors, still very expensive technology, but there's a fresh pulse of interest in nuclear, um, you know, with all the waste problems and safety problems that, that's, that people ought to be mindful of. There's a third cluster of technologies called carbon capture and storage. Um, the models right now show that if you want to make big, swift reductions in emissions, you need the capacity to capture carbon dioxide at power plants and inject it underground. Uh, or maybe even to capture carbon dioxide in the air where it's a low, relatively low concentration and then inject it underground. All, all that's expensive to do right now. There's a lot of attention to that technology. I, I don't know if that's going to pan out. And then, of course, there's lots of other things. There's a million different technologies related to energy efficiency and so on. But I think we're going to see a, 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 a new attention, including money, on, on at least these three big fronts, on advanced renewable systems, on nuclear, and on carbon storage. And where do you think the money will come from? Do you think there'll be a multilateral fund to support these, or would it mostly come from the private sector? I think it's going to come from both those and from national funding. Um, the, the, there are some areas of international science that are funded multilaterally, like big science projects and so on. I think we'll see new attention to to more joint funding of that type for, for big big projects. And that's part of what the U.S.-China bilateral agreements are about in the ongoing process between the United States and China. I think most of the money is still going to be public sector funds uh, inside countries, the kind of classic good old-fashioned method of funding new technologies, uh, innovation and deployment of new technologies, and then letting those technologies diffuse around through the world economy. There was in Paris a, a, an announcement organized by the French government and by Bill Gates and, and some other very wealthy people to mm -hmm. increase their own private investment in energy technologies. I think a lot of what was announced was already in process, um, but you, you might see more uh, individuals. I, I, my own view is that we can't sit back and, and wait for wealthy individuals to do this altruistically. We need to make sure there's a business model out there for new ideas and technologies that are low carbon or even negative carbon that have you know, net negative emissions for those technologies to, to survive in the marketplace. And then as that business model is, is trued up and people gain confidence in it, then you're going to see a lot of private money flow into it. There are some concerns that the, the recent uh, drop in price for oil may demotivate funding for renewables or alternative technologies. Do you think this is temporary or are there long-term concerns? I don't know. I think that's an important question. The, the, there's no question that the decline in the price of oil has produced the incentives that we would expect. For example, this uh, year 2015 was the biggest year on record for U.S. car sales and a big shift to heavier 
less efficient cars, and we, we, we we're seeing these rebound effects in the economy. My own view is that that's been a little overplayed because most governments are dealing with these energy efficiency questions and fuel types with a lot of regulation. It may not be economically the right way to do it, but they're, they're using a lot of regulation. So that regulation, even in a low-price environment, gets locked into place to some extent, so we're forcing higher fuel economy and, and, and so on. Um, I think the uh, uh, in addition to the price of oil going down, to me, one of the most interesting stories is the decline in the price of natural gas, whether because of horizontal drilling and fracturing in the United States or because most of the world buys gas, uh, bulk gas at least, on contracts that are indexed to the price of oil. And so when the price of gas comes down, that makes it easier for gas to outcompete coal, which is good for the environment, including good for um, uh, global warming because gas intrinsically emits less carbon dioxide than coal. Um, but then it also creates a lot of challenges for renewables. And so I think that's a mixed uh, a, a mixed story there that's going to be quite difficult. I guess one last comment on this is I expect the price of oil is going to come back up, um, not in the next year or so because the inventories are huge, but um, uh, it's going to come up maybe with a recovery of the global economy and certainly with the huge reduction in investments in oil supplies mm-hmm. that we're seeing in the industry right now. So that'll, that takes a while to work its way through. That'll reduce supply, reduce inventories. Prices will come back up. But to me, what's interesting is that oil is becoming like a normal commodity now and less of a special commodity. And, and part of that is because the marginal supplies of oil have now really shifted out of the uh, out of countries where we have security concerns and into, for example, shale oil production in the United States. And I think that'll actually be, in terms of energy, maybe also the environment, in terms of energy, that'll be one of the big stories over the next decade. So carbon was not one of the topics for discussion this time. Do you think this is something that will pop up you know, this coming year or in, in future COP negotiations? There was some discussion of international trading of emission credits. And you'll see, I think we'll see more of that as more countries do something to try and control emissions at home, more of those countries are going to experiment with trading systems, including international exchanges of trading. Um, for the most part, the, the, the right place for, for carbon taxes is within national political systems. And there are some theorists who are excited about the idea of international carbon taxes and international transfers of money and things like that. But that stuff is interesting in theory, very hard to make work in the real world where countries can, can come and go from inconvenient international policies. So I think the reason we don't, didn't see more attention to, to taxation and market strategies in Paris is that that's really the prerogative of national governments as opposed to the content of an international agreement. Uh, and finally, I know we're running out of time. Uh, you know, What are your thoughts on the, the coming elections in the U.S.? Do you think, regardless of who comes into power, that the U.S. will still have a leadership role in promoting climate change and, and technologies to address that? Well, I think it's the elections are unfolded on this topic, maybe no other. <laughs> elections are unfolding in predictable ways. Uh, the left is in favor of climate policy in a major way. Uh, Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton, you know, they're competing with each other to see who's got a stronger climate policy. Um, the right is, for the most part, not. Um, I, and I think the, the, all the candidates on the Republican side, um, but for maybe one or two, have staked out such extreme positions on climate change that even if they tack to the center during the general election, it will be hard for them to walk away completely from what they've said about this topic. So I think actually the election will have a significant impact. To me, that's important because if you 
brought into power an administration that wanted to undo as much of what the Obama administration has done, that that would be harmful to the Paris process. My guess is what it would do is force the United States not to join the Paris Agreement and would force everybody else to figure out how they cope without the Americans for now. And that's not the first time that that's happened, and the rest of the world's kind of used to that. And, and the other thing I think is interesting is that the United States continues to occupy a really important role in this process, but maybe more important has been the rise of the emerging economies, China, India, Brazil. Um, they needed a more flexible process if they were to engage with this in a serious way, and that's what they got in Paris. And so to some degree, if you want to look for leadership, what you want to look for are the countries that have the greatest capacity to vary what they're doing at home in a way that has an impact in international negotiations. And, and in my mind, the Chinese are now doing that. The Americans are doing this. They're trying to best their ability, but the Chinese are really doing it. There's been a huge shift in the Chinese rhetoric about climate change and their participation in this international process over the last three to five years, and, and that has been pivotal to the negotiations. And since I'm living in Japan right now, uh, what are your thoughts on the stance of the Japanese government negotiations? Um, the Japanese government is in a very tricky position because shutting down the nuclear fleet raised emissions. Um, in order to reduce emissions in a way that's consistent with what the industry thinks it needs for economic competitiveness, they've got to turn on part of the nuclear fleet, and uh, and that's a very very difficult proposition. So I think most of I think Japan is extremely constrained domestically by what it, uh, about what it can do. Japanese also had a bad experience with Kyoto. They had no option but to support Kyoto because they hosted the conference. But the main compliance mechanism for Japan and Kyoto was buying emission credits, not all of which were real credits, <laughs> from China. And basically what you had were Japanese industries subsidizing their competitors in China. And I think people people in Japan uh, visit, visit often and talk with a lot of folks. And I, I think the industrial interests are very, very wary about a repeat of that. And this new process won't do that, um, but, but it certainly has left a bad taste. Okay, well, um, I, I know we're out of time, so thank you so much again. I hope this process will um, certainly unfold in a positive way. Yes, I, I think it's very encouraging, but there's a huge amount to be done. Uh, and I don't know if you have a website, but, but if it's possible to connect some of the pieces I wrote for Nature and the LC60 just about what to expect in Paris and what happened in Paris, that might be interesting for your readers. Okay, uh, Professor Victor, thank you so much again. My pleasure. Nice to talk to you again. And we were just talking to Professor David Victor from the School of International Relations and Pacific Studies at UC San Diego. We were just talking about the Paris Agreement at COP21 and how the climate regime can move forward. Uh, links to his paper Nature in Yale 360 can also be found on our website. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in again next week for more from the world of science, technology, and the way they affect our daily lives. In the meantime, you can check us out at www.grox.net on Facebook and Twitter. You can also email us at science at grox.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. Stay tuned here for more music. Yeah.